Today on The Black Goat, we talk about how our training and work as psychologists has influenced us as people, and a letter about when replication becomes beating a dead horse. Hi, everybody, and welcome to The Black Goat. My name is Sanjay Srivastava. I'm here with Alexa Tullett and Samin Vizier. And Samin has some very exciting news. She has a new boy in her life uh, <laughs> who is making her ass sore, I think you said earlier. Oh, wow. Do you want to tell us all about that? <laughs> yes, he's two years old and very mouthy and a dog. Um, his name is Hugo. <laughs> He's a puppy and acts like it. He's like an angel, I would say, 90% of the day. I think he's really great. Yeah. Yeah. And then like for 15 minutes, once or twice a day, he's like so hyper and wants to put everything in his mouth. And there's no, I haven't figured out what to do. I've tried saying no. I've tried like ignoring him. I've tried, yeah, throwing a ball, you know. <laughs> Actually, the latest thing I tried is like getting him to lie down and then I push him over on his side and he that works as long as he stays down. But then as soon as I'm like, okay, he's ready, he's calmed down, he's ready to come back up, mm-hmm. but no, he starts. Yeah. Fighting. And it's it's kind of hard not to encourage him a little bit because he's like so happy. It's like he's it's like a manic phase. Yeah. So he's like jumping around and he's like so excited and he just like wants to like bite you to show how excited he is. Yeah. He thinks it's a game, I think. Yeah. But other than that, and, he's great. Uh, and we should say for our listeners, so Alexa and Samin are, uh, Alexa's visiting Samin and Davis right now. And so Alexa, you've gotten to to meet Hugo. Yeah. And yeah, um, I'm so jealous. <laughs> yeah, I feel like this is a good way for me to create attachment to dogs. Like, I think like having been there when Samin got Hugo and like, I mean, it's not like I was part of the decision process, but I could imagine, you know, that I was part of the decision process. Um, so yeah, I don't know. It's hard to like not be pretty attached to, to him. And Hugo is a Newfoundland mix, yeah, is that right? Yeah, we don't know exactly, but I think he's at least part Newfoundland, yeah, and then, but he's not as big. Yeah. His, his head and his feet are as big as Newfoundland, <laughs> and then the rest of him is not. <laughs> That's so, kind of funny yeah. and adorable. Yeah, so what what what's the deal with big dogs? Why? Why like, I, like I remember them? you saying you, you wanted, like, because Bear was pretty big, yeah. and I remember you saying you wanted another big dog. Yeah, I mean, one big reason is that they're lazy, and so, like, they don't, like... <laughs> Both Bear and Hugo actually, like, don't love walking. Like, they like going on walks because they meet people or, like, dogs or whatever. But other than that, they're like, yeah, we could just stay here. That would be fine with me. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's good. But I also just think they're really adorable looking. This is a fact mm-hmm. about Samin. She just likes things that are big in general. That's true. Like, once I was trying to get her... She was talking about, like, why she doesn't understand that, like, people um, talk a lot about psychophys in intro psych or whatever and she's like people don't need to know like how your ear works or whatever and i was like what are you talking about how your ear works is so cool and i was like talking about the semicircular canals and balance and stuff like that which i thought was like really cool when i learned it and i like get really excited about it when i teach teach students and she was like it's just so small you know (laughs) (laughs) it's also why i like large samples (laughs) i I thought i thought you were gonna go somewhere totally different with that uh opening remark about some things that are big. Um, Mine is in the gutter today, Sandra. <laughs> it is, it is. Well, you know, come on. We've got the explicit warning on the podcast. That's we have true. To, we might as well use it. We might as well use it. Yeah, we, yeah. I mean, we don't really use it that well, do we? That's we true. like, I swear a little bit, and, yeah, and right. that's about it. Yeah. Um, 
we're we're always pretty above board. I think. Yeah, now that we've lulled our listeners into a false sense of security, they think they can play their podcast around our podcast around their kids. <laughs> <laughs> their kids will have no idea what we're talking mm-hmm. about, though. It's always funny with my kid, like what what he misses and what he picks up on. Mm-hmm. And he, you know, he picks up on more and more, but sometimes, yeah, he just like <laughs> completely misses on stuff. And I'll sort of be like, oh, if you remember this conversation in like yeah. five years, you're gonna, especially like you know, although we do we do this less and less, but like sometimes like I'll I'll make some remark to Kristen that I know he won't get, just to like yeah, basically right. like to try to to try to like fuck with her like I'll say yeah. something and you know uh to try to like make her try not to laugh yeah, which yeah, always yeah. amuses yeah. me because she can't do it I was uh, talking to a friend recently about uh our love of the show crazy ex-girlfriend and she was saying that like they listen to the soundtrack in their house all the time and they have like a two-year-old and a four-year-old I think but like all the songs are about like inappropriate things like there's a song about period sex and things like that so I was like so do your kids go to daycare and they're like period sex period <laughs> sex and she's like well we try to like sing loudly over the lyrics with like slightly less bad lyrics (laughs) (laughs) speaking speaking of of favorite media you guys watched the big lebowski oh yeah so alexa had seen it already but i watched it for the first time you you saw it for the first time so do you finally you finally understand like half of the things that me and mickey and say so my brother since like 1998 or whatever has gone gone around saying it don't matter to jesus and i now understand (laughs) (laughs) what that means yeah. So, so honest, uh, honest answer. What, what did you think of it? It was exactly what I would expect based on the people who like it. <laughs> <laughs> it's like Mickey as a movie. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think I liked it, and I think I would have liked it better at the time. I think it hasn't necessarily aged super well. Like it just feels very, like it's just a masculine perspective, and like it's like two hours of just seeing things from a slightly pathetic man's perspective um which is entertaining but i i wouldn't want more than two hours of that i guess wait just to clarify i don't think mickey is a slightly pathetic man <laughs> <laughs> come on there four beers two psychologists their their rivalry is with very bad wizards i don't think we need to start up like a three-way beef with them. yeah <laughs> <laughs> So, Samin, you were telling us before we started recording about a, an interesting conversation you had with a reporter recently. Yeah, I was talking to a reporter who's writing on replicability, and he was like asking me to respond to some like arguments against or like criticisms of SIPs or the replicability movement and things like that. And one of the things he mentioned, he was like telling me things that other people he talked to had said and asking like my reaction. And he told me that one person he talked to uh, described <laughs> said like he was really upset about. Uh, some of the replicability things, and I don't want to say too much, but like one of the interesting things he said was that this person described the replicability movement, the people in that movement, as human scum. And I thought that was like kind of, I don't know, it was interesting because also like a common criticism is that we have a tone problem and things like that. And it reminded me also like at SIFS, somebody told me that they had recently been at a conference where some senior eminent person talked their ear off about how I, Samin, am ruining the field of social psychology and things like that. And I just think it's kind of funny that like, I know those conversations happen. I know those people think those things. I don't know which people, but I know some people think those things about us. Um, and I just like, I don't know. I think it's kind of funny and kind of ironic yeah. that like they think we're ruining the field and therefore they tell people how terrible we are and how... I think it, it does raise an interesting point about tone, which is that I think that like social media gets a bad rap for like allowing um, people to sort of 
say whatever they want. Like it gives people sort of this barrier between what they say and the person who receives it. Um, but of course, there's much more protection when you're talking about people behind closed doors. Yeah, um, I'd rather be called human scum on social media, I think. <laughs> well, because then, then like you can, I mean, well, you probably wouldn't respond to that. You'd probably just laugh it off. But like, yeah. at, it's but at least the person's thing. accountable. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, right, yeah. Right. That's what I mean. Well, yeah, like, I, I think. That, yeah. Like the whole social media tone thing is like, it's, you know, it's, it's a lot of outsiders and weirdos and people like that who, you know, occasionally mouth off or whatever. As opposed to like people whispering, she's human scum in like the halls of power. And, you know, like I, uh, I mean, I've talked about this before, like, I, you know, having been on like society boards and part of other conversations, like you see people say shit and you're like, holy shit, I can't believe that person. And sometimes it's like insults like that. And sometimes it's just like, I wish, you know, sometimes it's like sort of not insulting tone but like i wish you would make that argument out loud mm-hmm. in front of people so that they could like yeah tell you how yeah, wrong yeah. you are instead of you just like carrying on like repeating this thing that makes no sense that you're using to justify something i also think like we should spend some time talking about human scum specifically <laughs> <laughs> so like that's like i was asking in mind <laughs> um i was asking samin uh the other day whether she has like um like soundbitey things written down for when she talks to reporters because I mean I very rarely talk to reporters and when I do I find that I'm very inarticulate and so I was wondering like if people who talk to reporters more often than me if they like have some things written down so like maybe this person this is their like selected <laughs> they insults wrote it down. <laughs> <laughs> they're like oh I gotta get my notes ready <laughs> just like a blank page with just yeah. two scum oh yeah of course I mean it's I feel like it's I mean, I've I've gotten more. I mean, stuff still gets to me, but like I, you know, it's amazing what like tenure does for being able to let shit yeah, roll off your yeah, back. You know, um, like yeah, I, I would much it's, rather someone call me human scum than yeah. you know a grad student right, or a, sure. you know early career person. Um, yeah. So bring it, whoever you yeah. are. Anonymous, <laughs> yeah. uh, I think it's also an interesting lesson. And like, for me, I've had to think a lot about this, like in editorial decision letters or communications with authors, like technically those things are not supposed to get leaked and be public, but I have started to just assume that anything I write in that capacity could be shared publicly. And so that it makes me like have to think a lot about which things would I be willing to put in writing, which things wouldn't I? And I'm trying more and more to line those up to like not have things that I'm not willing to say publicly because often there's a bad reason if you're not, not always, but often like if you're only willing to say something off the record, you know, behind closed doors or whatever, you have to really think about why that is, like what makes it that you wouldn't want to defend it publicly. Yeah, you know, it's an interesting, I mean, I think the, I think there's a lot of, there's a lot of discussion around like, should the peer review process be open? And more generally, like what should be open? Like how far do we want to take it? And it is kind of an interesting question like at at some point you know this comes up for me a lot with respect to governance kinds of issues in you know in my department we've had conversations about like we have an executive committee and we have like faculty meetings and our faculty meetings are open like we uh, for certain topics like hiring discussions we close them and we had a big discussion uh like a couple years ago because we have a grad student rep who comes to our faculty meetings and takes notes and circulates them to all the grad students and they took notes in the discussion about a hire and sent the notes out and they just didn't kind of you know uh um 
like they were just sort of used to this that that's what they did and and it was like you know so and so said they you know they don't want to hire this person because xyz and we had a big discussion about like that because the grad students were like hey look this is really valuable to us to see what these conversations are like and we were sort of like yeah but people aren't going to speak candidly in one of these meetings if they know that it could get back to the person um you know and yeah and so like where where do we like where is it okay to have sort of like where do you want people to be able to speak without worrying about certain consequences and kind of protect them from things some of those candid statements shouldn't actually be said out loud right Mm -hmm. (laughs) and some should so uh, uh, like it's like half and half in those situations where like sometimes you're like i can't believe that person said that it's so offensive and they wouldn't have said it if it was public and then other things are like oh it's good to know that but i can understand why someone wouldn't want it like on the record yeah yeah right like i mean i think for that to work well the people in the room you have to trust that the people in the room would hold the illegitimate stuff accountable like if somebody's in if and I, i think this would be true in my department that i would hope it would be true like if somebody said you know, something sexist, for example, we shouldn't hire that woman. I, I, it would be hard for me to imagine any of my colleagues doing it, but you, you'd have to trust that the people in the room are going to hold that person mm-hmm. accountable. But, you know, at the same time, like, you know, if, if you're like, this person, you know, I don't think this person does very good research, um, and I don't think they're, you know, I think their advisor does shitty research, and they've been trained and picked up those bad habits, and, and it's reflected in their work. You want to be able to say that, but you don't want to have to, like, start a yeah. beef yeah. with their advisor. Um, yeah, no, there are definitely so, some good reasons yeah. for lack of transparency yeah. sometimes. But... Yeah. Mm-hmm. Anyway. Well, should we move on yeah. to our letter? Yeah. You guys ready for the letter? All right. Cool. Okay. Um, Dear the Black Goat. I'm hoping y'all might be able to weigh in on an issue I'm having in terms of believing my own findings and my subfield more broadly. I do research in developmental psychology with special populations, including sexual minority and or adoptive parents, so unsurprisingly, when studies are quantitative, they have small sample sizes. I know that multiple small samples in social psych papers aren't necessarily believable, like the traditional five-study package that conceptually replicates an effect, but I don't know how much that problem um, applies to my subfield. As a general rule, we include the same measures in newer studies to continue replicating the findings in new samples to show that the effect exists. However, I continue to feel as if including the same measures over and over again, most of which are negative because we are still having to prove that gay parents aren't making their children, uh, aren't sorry, aren't messing their children up, might be considered unethical or simply upsetting to the participants. So my broader question is, when are we no longer replicating our findings and instead beating a dead horse? Sincerely, Anonymous. I know what a Bayesian would say. <laughs> what, what, what would, would a Bayesian say? What would a Bayesian say? Well, I feel like a Bayesian would say, like, you decide what level of, like, evidence you is, is strong enough for you. And when you reach that cumulatively across studies, then you stop including that measure. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah, I guess I'm, I'm not clear on why including the same measures in... I mean, maybe, they're, maybe the implication is they're running the same tests or whatever, but I don't, I don't... It's not totally clear to me how this is, like, replication. I mean, I guess, like, depending what you're doing, if you're, like, looking at a correlation between two things and they're always in every data set or whatever, maybe that's it. I mean, the, the question of whether like asking people certain questions or whatever is is upsetting or has adverse effects is sort of separate from the replication issue right um 
and and I think there's there's some interesting. I mean, it it, it connects with it, but it's yeah. it's a it's a like when it's a question the, it's like that has part of the cost benefit, right? Yeah. yeah like if yeah. there's a cost, then at some point there's diminishing enough returns that the costs aren't worth it. Yeah, and there's there's some good research on. And this is a slightly different version of it, but you know, there's some good research on how like asking certain like their uh, irbs often have assumptions that like merely asking certain questions is going to be harmful and there's some good research showing that for example asking people about trauma isn't harmful to them and and irbs often like especially like well even even i think some of the psychologists on them but you know people who aren't trained in psychology sometimes just assume that merely asking if someone's experienced a trauma for example is like uh, you know, elevate something above minimal risk or is harmful or whatever. And and this is something that one of my colleagues who does trauma research has had to deal with a lot and gets very frustrated with that, you know, when they want to do these studies. So I, I think that that part of it, I think there are other things, you know, asking the same question over and over again, it might annoy people. Well, it also means um, you're not including a different a, measure, right? So there's that cost. Yeah. Potentially, yeah, yeah. But the, it sounds like the... Um, yeah, yeah. Th- no, that's true. There could be opportunity costs. But in terms of like the effects on participants, yeah. um, I guess we shouldn't just the, assume that. Yeah. Yeah. Because I think that if, if like sometimes you have extra space, you can throw in another measure mm-hmm. and it doesn't have that opportunity cost of other measures because, you you know, you've, you've got all your stuff. And so so there I'd say if if an actual like reasoned analysis shows that asking these questions or including this measure might have some kind of you know, um, more than minimal risk, either in terms of bothering your participants or in, in, there could be confidentiality risk or something. And that's like a different question. Yeah. Right? I think, um, yeah. I think the broad answer is like, yeah, as you say, Samin, you decide on some like level of evidence that's good enough for you. And actually, I mean, I don't know how to do that technically, but probably people do know how to do that technically. Mm-hmm. Um, and then that would be informed, I guess, by the cost benefit analysis. So if, you know, the costs of, the including the measures are quite high for whatever reason, then maybe you maybe you lower your ultimate need for I don't know, you know, obviously, like the the cost benefit analysis will inform that decision. But in this, in this particular case, I would say that um, it sounds like the I don't know the details of this case, but it sounds like they're including similar measures in multiple studies. And I guess I would caution against seeing like a pattern across multiple samples as necessarily super strong evidence before one of those samples is pre-registered and you've made the hypothesis ahead of time. Um, depending on how big the data sets are and how many analyses you're doing, you could still, you know, like see a pattern a few times and maybe it's still not as strong evidence as it might seem. Mm-hmm. And the other issue, this is kind of related to like conceptual versus direct replication is if you're adding it in new studies that and there's presumably at least some things that are different about the new studies. So you're also testing generalizability. And in the case of like gay parents, for example, I think there's good reason to think that things are changing pretty quickly over time. And so it could be interesting to know if the patterns hold, you know, from 10 years ago hold today, because society is pretty different with respect to gay parenting now, things like that. So there might be other advantages besides just replicating the effect, besides adding evidence to exact to the exact same research question, you might also be testing generalizability um, either just because of time or also because you're getting a slightly different population or a different um, measure or something like that. So I think sometimes what seems like boring old replication is actually a little bit more interesting yeah. than that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and the, the person starts out by saying that they these are typically small samples yeah. um, because of the area that they work in. 
and you know there are there are issues with sort of unsystematically looking across lots of small sample studies. So so if you're looking for mm-hmm. uh, non-null effects, if you're looking for for you know significant effects or whatever, you shouldn't be replicating it that frequently. Uh, assuming this right. is a domain where small sample translates to to low power to detect a, a reasonable effect, um, like. And so if you think you're replicating an effect all the time, there's probably something wrong. And then the, the flip side is like for questions where they're expecting a null or expecting not to find an effect, um, seeing in study after study that you're not finding the effect isn't all that persuasive evidence. I mean, that that's how meta-analysis, that's part of why meta-analysis got invented was, you know, Hans Eysenck was questioning whether psychotherapy works and he would tally up all these trials that had non-significant effects but they were all small samples and it was you know glass and smith did the one of the first meta-analyses in 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 any field and you know in psychology to look at whether psychotherapy worked by aggregating across samples and so i think if if you want to persuade other people that these effects are negligible then i think you one you have to be systematic which means like pre-registering and, and doing things in a systematic way and pre-registering across multiple studies. So you could say, like, we're going to, you know, we run, you know, studies with an N of, you know, with a, with a very small N, and this is how many we need to do an equivalence test uh, to, to sort of show that effects are negligible. And so we're going to keep including these measures in studies until we reach the sample size and then run an analysis. So you, you could be more rigorous and systematic. Yeah. And in that case, you're not replicating exactly you're you you're accumulating data yeah. across studies until you have enough of a sample size to legitimately do what you want to do so with it you could actually do something that's almost never done but i think is really almost the only way to do a good meta-analysis which is pre-register prospectively a meta-analysis because you know those for the same reasons that we need to pre-register studies for the individual results to be confirmatory mm-hmm. we really should be pre-registering i mean we can't because Often meta-analyses are not based only on research that we do and we can anticipate. But in this case, if you're going to do an internal meta-analysis, I mean, I have a lot of qualms about internal meta-analysis, but the one condition under which I'm pretty okay with them is if they're pre-registered, the individual analyses in each study is pre-registered, and there's no file drawer. So you can do that if you know that you're going to include these Wait, so you're talking about like you're about to start a line of research, and so you pre-register ahead of time, like we're going to run these five studies, and then we're going to meta-analyze them. Right, right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, or you could do something. Yeah, I think you could do something a little bit more. Um, like, so you might be planning to run five studies, and you know you're going to meta-analyze it at the end. Or this might be one of those cases where, like, you have this measure that you throw into studies when you can, and so you say, "I'm, you know, I'm gonna every study that we throw this measure into, I'm gonna include in a meta-analysis until we reach n equals three hundred or whatever." You know, um, yeah. So yeah, I mean, I think to, to sort of come back to the letter, um, if they're if they're just including the measure, like it, it's not clear to me why they say like we we you know um, including the measures over and over again to continue replicating the findings, and I guess it's it's not clear to me what the what the the full extent of the thinking behind that is. Like if it's if it's one of those cases where it's just you know, kind of out of habit, then I would step back and say, like, what are you getting out of it? And it, it may well be that 
doing it more systematically and rigorously would be worth doing. So doing it with a plan as opposed to just like reflexively throwing this in to like have more data, which is something that people do also. Um, but it, yeah, if you're just throwing it in without a plan or without much of a reason, I guess, um, yeah, I don't know. I would maybe ask, step back and ask yourself some questions. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And also my like general answer to the more broader question of like, at what point does replication become beating a dead horse? Is I, I think that of course can happen in principle, but I haven't seen very many cases yeah, where yeah. it's like, I mean, I guess maybe if people continue to test the, the main effects of like power posing or maybe mm-hmm. some versions of ego depletions, like we have so much evidence at this point that more evidence probably isn't going to change anybody's minds, but there's very few effects, at least in social psych that I feel that way about. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, and it's guess... it's kind of up to, it, to some extent, it's up to the re- the person running the study. Like they might, if look, if so, if somebody thinks that they can get an ego depletion effect with a classic two task paradigm, doing it the same way people have always done it, like if they're if they're applying for funding, and I'm a grant reviewer, I'm probably going to say let's invest our money elsewhere. But if like if they're doing the study on the cheap and and they think it's worth doing like i'd say we'll do it well and good luck to you but i don't think it's going to happen i mean it's the same thing with like if someone wants to do you know not not to compare ego depletion to esp but like if so you know it's i wouldn't say like it's unethical to do esp studies i'd just be like yeah good luck to you um yeah okay cool Mm -hmm. cool um do you guys have any more is that noise coming through? Is that is somebody uh, a gardener like, at my neighbor's lawn mowing? Yard. Yeah, okay. sorry. All right. okay. <laughs> it's like, is, is does Hugo snore? Is that what that is? No, but okay. he yawns like an old man. He'll like yawn and be like, oh, yeah. That's, that's a very good imitation. <laughs> does he actually say that? That sounded like a uh, uh, you know the Beastie Boys song where they sample the dog saying "I love you." <laughs> <laughs> sounds like your your impersonation of Hugo sounded yeah, like yeah. that. Yeah, he makes really funny noises. That's a yeah. that's a gardener. I think there's both. So they're destroying a building over there, but I think there's like leaf blowing happening over okay. there. All right. Well, if if you're listening, listeners, and if you would like to have your letter uh, read to the sound of Hugo yawning and or. <laughs> gardeners destroying buildings <laughs> um you can email us uh our email address is letters at the blackcoatpodcast.com uh we love to get feedback as well as things to read on an episode and never feel like we have too much you can always send us stuff we always like to hear it um we uh you can find us on the web at www.theblackcoatpodcast.com or on twitter at blackcoatpod or on facebook facebook.com slash blackcoatpod we're now on Instagram, instagram.com slash blackgoatpod, where right after this episode is over, Samia is going to post a picture of Hugo, so you can go see Hugo if you haven't already by the time this comes out. Um, and thank you, everyone who listens. Oh, and another thing you can do uh, if you're so inclined is rate us on iTunes, because that uh, helps people find us. And uh, if you give us five stars, it makes us happy. And if you give us fewer stars then why didn't you just email us instead? <laughs> <laughs> I think right, I'd rather cool. so, just get the fewer stars. <laughs> I guess it depends what the email says. <laughs> I mean, if you give us one star and you say these people are human scum, that would be then pretty funny. that's okay. 
yeah, yeah. <laughs> so someone's gonna, so someone who actually likes this is gonna do that ironically because they think yeah. it's funny, and then we're gonna be like, what the fuck just yeah. happened? Yeah. All right, cool. So uh, for our main topic today, we wanted to talk about how our jobs have influenced us as people, and and we apparently, uh, okay, so I'm. I'm getting old. My brain doesn't work anymore. You guys reminded me that apparently we had a letter a while back that was kind of related to this, but we, we sort of wanted to talk about it more broadly and, and kind of expand on it. Like, um, it is kind of interesting because, you know, a very common experience among a lot of people who are in grad school for psychology or have a degree in psychology, when you tell people you're a psychologist, they make all these assumptions that, mm-hmm. you know, like, oh, are you analyzing me? And, you know, all those other things. And, uh, um, you know, there, so there's kind of like a, the popular assumption of what we know and are good at. And, and then, you know, but I think we, we were sort of chatting before the episode that we all have like some things that are uh, um, that actually we think have influenced us. But I mean, I find that the the common idea that like, well, I mean, one thing that comes up that people bring up is like, oh, you're you're like good with people, um, like you know, you're good at like dealing with people or whatever. Yeah, right. And my, I, I always, I'm always like, have you seen my colleagues? <laughs> <laughs> but then, then I then I start to think like, you know, oh, but maybe it's a selection effect. Like maybe people who like you know are crappy at dealing with other people go into psychology. But it's like a suppressor variable. But then it does make. Have them you better, met any philosophers, Sanjay? <laughs> <laughs> oh, let's trash talk philosophers. <laughs> Fuck that. You know, forget the the topic. Let's just like trash talk. <laughs> I just don't know if we're especially bad at dealing with people. I think even like outside of academia, my, my dad's job, like his colleagues were terrible. And yeah, you know, I, I would say like worse. at a at SPSP, I would say the social competence among the people who are there is higher than average. Really. At least higher than average for academics, but I think maybe even higher than average overall. Hmm. I don't know. I think it's high. Yeah. Okay, so you mentioned this, like, okay, when you first meet people, they say, are you analyzing me? Or also I get, like, are you reading my mind often? Yeah. Do you guys have good responses to those things? Because I feel like I should come up with something, like, really, really clever because people ask me that all the time, but I, I don't have anything. Usually I say, I don't know, something like, I don't... Ha ha ha! You're so funny. <laughs> I don't know. Good one. Yeah. <laughs> yes, I'm, I'm. I'm reading your mind, and I can tell you haven't studied psychology. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah I don't no, know. I don't like. I can't take those people seriously. Like nobody actually thinks that people can read each other's minds. No, right? no, no. But they do. I do. I do think that people have a sincere, like, defensive reaction. Mm-hmm. Some people, when they find out that you're a psychologist, that like, they're worried that you have more insight into their behavior than the average person would. Yeah, I totally think people believe that because, yeah. I mean, look at how, like, quote-unquote nonverbal behavior experts are, like, super, you know, right? This idea that, like, there are these tricks. And, I mean, I thought this before I started studying psychology that, like, you'd learn, like, how to tell what someone's really thinking. Or if they're lying. You know, they're they're yeah. sort of, like, yeah, yeah, right. Like, the the sort of the Ekman stuff, I think, is the, the like, more sort of trying to be legitimate version of this. But, um uh, you know, the idea that, yeah, you could read someone's nonverbals or you could sort of tell what's going on. So I, I do think that, like, literal mind reading in the psychic sense, I don't think people think we're doing that. But, you know, they do think we have these sort of special insights. Right. So we, uh, Samina and I watched Three Identical Strangers a couple of days ago, um, which is a documentary about uh, triplets that were um, separated at birth, which I guess is all I'll say about it. But there's one par- part in the movie where... They're interviewing a 
psychologist who has interacted with um, with some of the triplets. And the psychologist makes this comment about, like, uh, I think he uses the term hyperaggression. And it's presented in the film, which I think the film is, like, generally, like, pretty acclaimed um, and has gotten, like, a fair amount of attention. But it's presented in the film as if this psychologist um, has this privileged insight into this child's behavior and also that the parents are not aware of this. Um, and I don't think that's a total mischaracterization yeah. of... I think that's right. Yeah, I think it's kind of creepy how people think that psychologists can, like, yeah. I mean, they treat they privilege a psychologist's interpretation or, or impression above anybody else's, including parents or teachers or people who know the kids really well. I think that's kind of creepy. I mean, sometimes it might be justified, but I think on average, it's a, the assumption is much stronger than the reality. Yeah, I mean, this this came up with uh, um, you know relatively recently within the last couple of years with like psychologists and especially clinical psychologists. Should they be talking about Donald Trump and you know as a narcissist? And you know, and there's some really interesting there's some interesting history related to like the Goldwater Rule and the sort of the way that like mental illness gets stigmatized and and all that. But yeah, I mean, my my response to a lot of that was like they're just taking what everybody else is seeing and adding a fancy label to yeah, it. You know, and nar- it's narcissistic personality disorder. It's like you can you can look at the same behavior everyone else is looking at, and you know there there's nothing like. I mean, I think that if if for example you could by knowing that person has characteristic x that everyone can see but you because of being an expert you know that they also have characteristic y or something you know that you you know oh his public behavior is like this and so we know enough about this you know that if we put him in this diagnostic category it also means in private he'll do this or whatever but it's like i didn't find any of that to be the case with the whole donald trump is he a narcissist kind of thing because it's like yeah we know like everything's on the record like you just have to look at it you know Yeah. And and we even have language for it in lay terms. So we don't even need the like labels that psychologists can add. And I, I felt I feel like it's especially ironic that what experts often in psychology are like contributing in those situations or like an expert testimony or things like that is often like increased certainty when in fact if anything what the experts should be able to contribute is an appreciation of the uncertainty, not necessarily in Donald Trump's case because he's so extreme, but like in many other cases where, like in Three Identical Strangers, there's a question about why someone did what they did. And I feel like what a psychologist should say is there doesn't have to be an explanation or one single explanation. Like it would be crazy to attribute it to one factor. Um, and often it's the opposite. The psychologists are like, oh, well, if you look at this episode or this factor in their life or whatever. And I feel like that's really frustrating. I feel like if, if experts are good for anything, at least in the social sciences, it's for appreciating how there aren't really clear-cut answers to many of these questions. And it's the wrong question to ask. Like, what's the explanation for this individual action or event? Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I feel like one of the... I mean, one of, so one of the answers to... In this sort of domain, that to the question of, like, you know, how has being a psychologist helped is, like, I don't feel like it help, makes me better necessarily at like predicting things i mean sometimes um and we you know this is a slightly different thing like understanding how prediction works is a different matter but in terms of just like in my everyday life like predicting how someone's going to behave or or 
you know, figuring out what's going on in someone's head or whatever. Like, I don't know that my training has made me any better at that, but I, I think what it's done, and sometimes this is helpful and sometimes it's not as we're talking about, but it, it's, I feel like it's given me a set of, like a language and a set of concepts to work with. So I, it doesn't mean I will be better at like making the ultimate decision, but it's like, I, you know, I have, if I'm talking about someone's personality, I, you know, I have the big five to draw on, or I have like motivational concepts to draw on. It's like, I have this, this, it's like this language in the system of concepts, but then I could use that to be overconfident and to make wrong predictions, or I could use it, you know, so I, I mean, I guess maybe like description is maybe where it's helped more than explanation or prediction in everyday life. I would say even then, I think a lot of the constructs I work with and the concepts I study like are really, really similar to the lay version of that concept, or sometimes even worse. Like conscientiousness is a terrible word for something that everybody understands if you describe it in lay language. And I, I mean, especially studying like first impressions and things like that, like one takeaway for me is like, we're all kind of experts at this stuff. Like not great, not like amazingly accurate, but we all pay attention to these things, make judgments on these things. They have some accuracy. So like, it's especially ironic to me that people like look to psychologists to be like, what is this person's personality? Like, it's like, you're actually pretty good at judging that yourself. And there's not much that an expert can add. Sure, we can use fancier labels, but sometimes they're actually less clear than the labels lay people would use in describing each other. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think that um, if if there is a benefit of being a psychologist when it comes to explaining people's behavior, I think it it should come from like a greater awareness of uncertainty and complexity, right? So like, I think, you know, knowing how difficult it is to, for example, explain a lot of variance in people's behavior, I think helps to um, make me more tentative when trying to understand. I'm not sure if that's true. I don't know. Like in day-to-day life, I probably am just as sort of overconfident in trying to explain other people's behavior. But I do think I have at least a cognitive awareness of how difficult it is. Um, and like, yeah, for like, for instance, like with the movie Three Identical Strangers, like how difficult it is to address like a, a simplistic question like you know is it nature or nurture that influences our behavior like um i'm just sort of like reluctant to even address those questions i think as a consequence of being in psychology yeah well yeah and and i mean i i, I wonder if sometimes we as psychologists become so used to the things we already know that we yeah, forget definitely. what it was like to not know them i mean i'm thinking about you know like again you know in terms of like describing personality just some some basic things like realizing that personality traits are on a continuum and most people are in the middle rather than two Mm -hmm. types um you know you look at like the popularity of the myers-briggs versus how personality psychologists think about personality and you know typologies and i think the the sort of the certainty and i think you know for me like will fleason's work has given me a much greater appreciation of like both you know, consistency and variability and how to think of both of those things at the same time. Um, and, and again, those aren't giving me like, I can't just look at somebody and make a prediction, but there it's a set of concepts and tools that I can, if, if I'm able to sort of step back and think about them, that I'm able to apply in how I think about something. So at least I have the potential to, 
to do better. But it's it, yeah, it's different than I think the the lay version of it is like oh I like you said Samin like oh I can make a better first impression than somebody else and it's like no but I I would have like a different set of concepts to put that in than than another person would and and maybe I could use those better you know I mean another another analogy is it's sort of like being really good at describing how to hit a baseball hmm. versus being a really good major league mm-hmm. batter mm-hmm. you know and and I feel like what we're good at is like describing the physics of swinging a bat and hitting a ball maybe we're good <laughs> yeah. at it. or at least the, the thing the thing the, the thing that we're about that maybe we're good at it maybe we're not but the thing we're about is like describing how a baseball player hits a ball and you know we all know that like somebody who could put that in the best verbal terms possible that doesn't hardly at all translate into actually being able to like hit a home Mm -hmm. run yeah that makes sense do you do you think that it is so maybe people make the assumption that we are more interested in analyzing people and maybe we're maybe we're better or not um but i i used to think that wasn't true that i was like particularly interested in people or in analyzing them um because i just sort of assumed that everybody was interested in that and that it just so happened that like my profession focused on that um but recently i was like so i'm reading the elena ferrante set of novels and so first of all one of my friends suggested it to me and i think it was partly based on the fact that there's like a lot of introspection in the books that she suggested it to me and i really liked it so she was right first of all that i would like it because of that um and then uh i was talking to my mom about it and my mom has read, it's a, there's four books in this one particular series. Um, and my mom had read the first one and she was like, yeah, I like it, but it's just like, there's a lot of analyzing in it. And I didn't like, I didn't realize that at all. I just felt like it was like a normal level of analysis for describing people's behavior. So it made me think that maybe I, maybe I am sort of like unusual in my interest in that and my sort of patience for it. Yeah. Do you feel like, Alexa, that that's something that's a result of like your training and your work? Or was that more like a selection thing like that? Yeah, that was part of your personality that sort of was part of how you ended up being a psychologist. My guess would be that it's a selection effect. Of course, I don't know. Um, I mean, it's I think it's 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 reinforced a little like I, I I always find it interesting to be around psychologists and gossiping about or about yeah. people because like I mean, first of all if you're like if you're around personality psycho well especially like yeah. my former advisor Oliver John like when we when we would gossip about people he would always gossip in the big five which was just <laughs> hilarious like you know, he'd be like talking about people you explicitly using you know and, like and, bottom five percentile agreeableness yeah yeah exactly and so you know there's some like sort of nerdy like inside baseball stuff like that um but uh yeah, it is, you know, it is interesting, like, like, when I compare, you know, how I gossip about people with my psychologist colleagues versus with my my other friends, it, it does feel different somehow, like, we're, you know, we're using different language, but we're also kind of um, uh, maybe going farther with it or so, something. Yeah. yeah, that's definitely my experience. Like, mm-hmm. I think when I talk to other social personality psychologists versus non psychologists, yeah, I think 
we can talk about it for a lot longer yeah, without getting bored. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, so one prediction I would have if, if studying social personality psychology had any effect or it, it could be a selection effect too, but if there were any difference, it would be that we should be less often surprised by people's behavior hmm. because if we're supposed to be studying the situational dispositional influences on behavior and things like that, we should be more able to be like, yeah, of course that was going to happen. They've done that 10 times in the past and the mm-hmm. situation was really pulling for it. And so... Like, yeah, I knew I knew that was going to blow up mm-hmm. or whatever. And do I, you have that sense? I feel like you do have I do have that sense, but yeah. I think I would before. I think I had that sense before. <laughs> I was a social psychologist, and I think you shouldn't trust myself report at all. Uh, but I definitely yeah. have that, yeah. that subjective feeling. Mm-hmm. And I feel like often other people are surprised at people's behavior, and I'm like, yeah, like, of course. <laughs> like, and But it's post hoc, so that's yeah. easy for me to say. I don't have that sense. Like, I don't feel like I'm... An old hand at people understanding people. Well, I guess, like, one example was, like, when the Ego Depletion results came out and Baumeister tweeted about how, like, hey, guess what? There was an effect, blah, blah, blah. And it was, like, a D of 0.06 and stuff like that. And people were like, oh, my God, is this a joke? Like, is, is this, like, did someone hack Baumeister's account or pretending to be Baumeister? And I was like, no. Like, of course, someone who's very invested in the effect and then there's a result that's somewhat ambiguous and you could interpret it as supporting your lifelong body of work you know and you've never shown evidence that you were open to reinterpreting that or the idea that you were wrong then why would he all of a sudden you know this dispositional and situational force is strongly pulling for that reaction Mm um yeah Yeah. so what about mental health like how how do you guys feel like so we're none of the three of us are clinical psychologists so that that puts us in kind of an interesting position because i you know, I feel like I know more about clinical psychology than an average person on the street, but it's not my, um, you know, it's not my research specialization and I have no training. But, like, do you guys feel like, how, how has it affected your mental health or your the way you think about or relate to your mental health? I mean, that's a great question. I I almost feel like I don't know more than the average person on the street about clinical psychology surely that's not true um but i guess like maybe being in psychology has it certainly has the impact on me that like i um would advocate for people going to see therapists and um and would like strongly try to discourage someone if they thought that if they had some kind of like shame about going to a therapist, not discourage them from going to the therapist, discourage them from being swayed by the embarrassment. Um, so there's that. And then I don't, yeah, I'm not, sh- I'm not sure that I have any advantage when it cl- comes to clinical psych issues. I think I'm a more annoying patient in therapy. <laughs> I had one therapist in grad school who was trying to convince me that I was depressed and I was like, I am not depressed, damn it. And I imagine that like having a psychology person as a, as a client in that situation is really, really annoying. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, I found that, um, so I don't think I have I don't think I have better this is sort of going back to kind of what I was a little bit of what I was saying earlier like I don't I don't think I'm more likely I don't know it's hard it's so hard to know because like what's the parallel universe me that didn't go into psychology but like I like I still have huge gaps in my self-insight but when I do notice when I do finally notice what's going on I'm like I think I have language for it and Mm -hmm. concepts for it so that's one thing I think like when I 
like I was more willing, like I I recommend to other people to go into therapy a lot Mm -hmm. and and I encourage people to do it. And and when I've done it myself, I think I've been more willing to and also sort of ironically had lower expectations of it because I'm like, oh, therapy is better than not Mm -hmm. therapy, but the effect size is pretty small. So like, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know, it's it's like, you know, if if I would have had like a 50-50 chance of getting better on my own, now I've got like a 57-43 chance of getting better on my, you know, with therapy or whatever. Um, uh, it might be larger than that. Anyway, whatever. But um, yeah, so, so, and I, I don't know if I was an annoying patient <laughs> or not. I, I, you know, yeah, like I, I would, I think I was, because it, it was like weird because I would have these concepts to talk about things but then I wonder if it was like a weird experience for my therapist to be like he knows exactly what's going on and <laughs> can't do a fucking thing about it that's funny yeah yeah I wonder what it's like for a therapist to have yeah. psychologists yeah that would be a fun guest yeah, yeah. we should bring your therapist we on should. oh yeah that would be funny to get like a, a clinical psychologist mm-hmm. on um yeah I mean I, I feel like it's it's helped me a little bit with other people more so than with myself mm-hmm. maybe like yeah just knowing for example um uh you know knowing what more about what depression is and and how how varied the manifestation mm-hmm. of depression is and of course there's like interesting work suggesting it may not be one thing and whatever but like being you know being better able to sort of like recognize and talk about it um my my wife and I experience depression quite differently and so it's helped being able to like say like when you're feeling this way you do this but when I'm feeling this way I do that and it's both you know we're we both might be in the same general category of things but that's like a difference or whatever Mm -hmm. I don't know I think one thing it's helped me with like other people and maybe I mean maybe again it was a selection effect and I was always this way but I think I'm better at not expecting people to change so like if someone is doing something Mm -hmm. it's like it seems like it would be so easy to just ask them to stop doing this annoying thing it's such a small thing and so on I'm much more likely to find a workaround that doesn't involve asking them to change, which not everybody prefers that solution. I've been criticized for not giving people a chance to change and mm-hmm. so on. Yeah. Right. Yeah, I think I think there is that that benefit for other people. So I I do think that I've gotten better at recognizing signs of depression and anxiety in other people. And that usually makes me more compassionate. Like especially like in let's say undergraduate students so i think the way that depression and anxiety looks in undergraduate students to a professor who is mostly interacting with like them as a student and seeing their work is like it can look like laziness right or like they're not trying hard they're not coming to class uh they're not doing their assignments um so i think that makes me more compassionate um and also i think like the times when um like applying it to myself, the times when I'm having a hard time, I guess it decreases the sense of maybe alienation. Like it, I feel like I'm part of a relatively large group when, you know, if I'm like feeling depressed or something like that. So, so yeah, maybe it has more impact than I, I thought. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, just... uh, oh, go ahead. It, it's, it's funny that I, I mean that that sense of knowing that other people are going what you're going are going through what you're going through can be really important for a lot of things. My my experience is that I know that and then I forget it and then I rediscover it and I forget it and I just go uh-huh. through that over and over again. It's like I I have 
all this I've, I've been exposed to all this information that you know i i ought to know and it's it's kind of it's kind of like the baseball analogy too it's like there's a part of me that knows but then i i'm not always good at like remembering it when i need to remember it and applying it to myself and so you know i'll go through something i mean it's kind of like when we talked about imposter syndrome it's like you know you sort of forget that other people are in the same boat even though you ought to know it yeah but, but maybe i'm better at like reconnecting with that knowledge although then i forget about it yeah again. that's interesting which is kind of a symptom <laughs> itself right yeah. Yeah. <laughs> one um psychological construct i have a love-hate relationship with is attachment avoidance because i feel like uh the descriptive information about attachment avoidance is really really helpful for me and for explaining myself to other mm -hmm. people like these are the behaviors i'm likely to exhibit mm -hmm. this is the way i you know interact with people the way i'm in relationships but the like dynamic and psychodynamic explanations for it like really don't mm -hmm. resonate with me i don't feel like it stems from you know early childhood experiences or that it has like a negative drive behind it or things like that so i have like this really like it's really useful to me on the descriptive level but then everything beneath it I find not useful or and maybe that's characteristic of avoidant attachment that you're like no it's not for those reasons damn it but mm -hmm. yeah. I think it's interesting to have labels like that where you're like look I look like this and I am like this mm -hmm. on the surface but you got me wrong <laughs> yeah right, right so you know one one way that I I think probably my psychology training has influenced me the most is not like any specific knowledge, but taking a sort of analytical, quantitative, looking for the evidence approach to a lot of things. Mm -hmm. So, you know, like one one sort of small kind of funny example of this is, you know, or not funny, but um, like when we do graduate admissions, we, you know, I'm always interested in like, what's the inter-rater reliability when we're rating these files? And mm -hmm. it's like, I'm always like, yeah, the English department is not computing an alpha. They're probably not even doing ratings. I mean, who knows what the fuck they do. But, you know, it's like, um, you know, when we do when we do our merit raises, we run regressions in my department and that kind of thing. And, I, you know, I, I and I found that I, I'm, I think, much more interested in evidence um, about, or my, I'm much more likely to stop and say, hey, what's the evidence for this in a lot of domains of life? So like an example, I tweeted this the other day and the, the tweet kind of like went mini viral, but like um, with, uh, with mass shootings and, and active shooter drills in schools. So it, it turns out um, that there's, and I, I didn't think of this on my own, but I think I, I read it, I read something about this a while back and I think it was much more likely, these arguments were much more likely to sort of resonate with me and, and find purchase because I tend to think about this, that, that there's really not very good evidence that having been through an active shooter drill saves lives. And there's also, nobody's really studied whether it's like good for kids to be going through, like for their mental health, to be going through these experiences over and over again telling them that a bad person might show up in your school and try to kill people. Um, like the, you know, the effects of sending that message to kids over and over again haven't really I'd been be studied. I'd be pissed if I had kids and their school was doing that. I would be so pissed. Yeah, but it's it's so normal. And, and the reasons it gets done are because nobody wants to be the school district, the superintendent, the principal who, like, has an active shooter drill and, or who has an actual shooting and didn't do the drill mm -hmm. and you know mm -hmm. and and parents are going to demand it because they think it's it's important and it's possible it's possible that maybe they do make an impact the problem is that there's no evidence 
and we're just sort of proceeding with this. And I think those kinds of arguments, um, because the, the, you know, the arguments for doing them are very emotional and they're about like the representative or the, the availability heuristic. And they're, they're about all these like, um, sort of like the, the need to do something and there are all these things. And, you know, I think, I, I think at an, you know, a, a version of me that wasn't, in the habit of asking these kinds of questions with data and statistical analysis would have been less likely to sort of be asking these questions. And that, I mean, that's an interesting case too, where it's not a, the, the, like the politics of that are not sort of clearly partisan because to sort of be asking these questions, like part of it is you have to be acknowledging that mass shootings are quite rare events, which Mm -hmm. is, um, you know, sort of Not like mass shootings. Control yeah. Advocates. yeah, yeah. Like people, people are using mass shootings. I think there, are, there, are like other. I, I think mass shootings have it. This is a whole thing <laughs> I won't get into. Like you know, yeah, let's talk about gun control. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Anyway, uh, so back back to the yeah, but but I think those are the kinds of things that I'm much more analytical. About yeah, than I, used to do. I I see the like I think I see myself and maybe other psychologists also being sort of like less likely to make the law of small numbers error like less likely to generalize from like one instance or several instances like so when you talk about graduate students you know like if if somebody were to have had like a couple of grad students in a row that didn't work out that well i think i'd be like less likely to say like you're doing something wrong or your selection criteria are bad or things like that um and then also, I see this come up when people are talking about relationships and types and relationship styles and stuff like that. So, like, I know people who think that, um, I don't know, they have, like, an unhealthy relationship type. Um, and I'm sort of more likely to conclude, like, yeah, you just got unlucky a couple times. This is something The Bachelorette gets right, actually. Like, often, like, when, like, they're like, why did you not choose me? What went wrong? She was like, there was no reason. Yeah. And actually, I think that's something, <laughs> I, like, Yeah, I thought that was... I'm annoying really in that good. way, and I think I always have been. Like, I remember when people would ask me, like, why I chose Carlton for undergrad, I'd be like, I don't know. And they yeah. would, like, drive people nuts, and I'm like, but I, I don't. I could make up a story or, like, put too much weight on, like, one small mm-hmm. factor. See, yeah, I think it's it's nice when people are just like, yeah, that didn't work out. I don't know why it didn't work out. Yeah, there may not be a reason. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's funny. I I don't know that uh, psychologists in general are better at these things, especially doing them consistently. And this this is and this is something I like press myself on, like self critically a lot too. Is like some of these things that I know about, I'm like, am I applying those arguments selectively? And I also am suspicious sometimes when other people apply them selectively, you know, like the, and I, I don't want to be that person, but like the habit of asking what's the evidence is a really good habit unless you're only asking for it sometimes when like the thing, you know, like asking for more evidence for things you don't want to believe than for things you do. Um, and that's, you know, I'd see this come up in like the replicability and open science debate where people are like, what's the evidence that, you know, changing this journal policy will make things better? <laughs> and I'm like, what's the evidence that the way we're doing it now is any good, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Uh, and, and you know, so I, I try to catch myself doing those things. But of course, like, if I'm not good at it, then I'm not good at it. It's like, it's one of those things where like, sort of self-criticism and self-insight is kind of like... Uh, um, it's I guess it's like the Dunning-Kruger effect like if I wasn't good at it I wouldn't know that I'm not good at it but I'm always trying to 
make myself do that too. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, like the law of small numbers thing is like, you know, uh, oh yeah, I I know that this isn't, you know, that that like, you know, small numbers are bad until I have a small sample that like I could send to psychological science. And then it's like, no, this is great. This is totally true. Mm -hmm. You know? Mm -hmm. I think that's the time I feel the most like a psychologist around non-psychologists is when people tell me they're Myers-Briggs type. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm like, okay, do you have like 20 minutes (laughs) sit down? (laughs) Where do I even begin? Yeah. Um, Yeah. Yeah, There was this one guy who kept texting me that he like kept seeing the number one or 11 everywhere. And he would like text me every time he saw it. And he's like, oh my God. And I'm like, I don't know what to say. (laughs) Like one time he like texted me that like the clock said 1111 and his receipt was like $11.11. And he's like, I'm going to die. And I just like waited till the next day and texted him. I was like, I'm guessing you survived. (laughs) I don't know what to say. Psychologists, we're that guy. (laughs) We're we're that annoying person in your life who's always like the buzzkill. Yeah, there's like, okay, so there's the Myers-Briggs type, which I I do feel like it's like pretty fun to have that conversation because then I can tell people like, oh, you should, you know, check out the big five instead for these reasons. And like that usually ends up in like them taking the big five online and that's like a fun conversation to have. But then I get stuck when people are like, Oh, like, I'm a Pisces, you know? <laughs> I'm like, I don't... Yeah, you just understand the world in a very different way than I do, I guess. I had one guy who was like, tell me your sign. And I was like, I'm a Pisces. And he's like... I, Are you a Pisces? Uh, yeah. And he was like, I know your personality. I was like, uh-huh, tell me. And he was like, you're really stubborn and blah, blah, blah. And I was like, uh... <laughs> like, oh, shit. <laughs> Can't refute that. <laughs> well, that that that's where I feel like, like being a psychologist has, you know, helps me understand, like, why that's wrong. Being on Twitter has helped me. Uh, like, I, I feel like Twitter has made me very good at knowing when not, not. I shouldn't say very good, but it's helped me get better at knowing when not to get into an argument. Because it's like, mm-hmm. if you're on social mm-hmm. media enough, you've had so many experiences of just arguing with someone. It's like a buffet and, of argument opportunities. Yeah, yeah. And you're, and you're just sort of like, oh, I can tell this is never going to go anywhere. And I'm just going to get frustrated. So I'm just not even going to start it. And so, yeah, yeah the like... The, the astrology signs, sometimes people will just bring that up and like, okay. I mean, I had I had the most, this was a couple of years ago, like I was getting my hair cut and the, the woman who was cutting my hair, like two minutes into the haircut starts about chemtrails. I don't know what that and is. Oh, man. you guys know about, so chemtrails is like, it's this conspiracy. So you know how uh, um, the, like when airplanes go across the sky and you know the white line it makes so huh. that's just water condensation okay. um, but there's this conspiracy that they're or like spreading it? mind control chemicals to, like, <laughs> and so like you know three minutes into this haircut you know the the barber starts uh, um, talking about chemtrails and she's all like you know telling me about this and I was just like I was like okay this is gonna be like half an hour I'm just gonna have to smile and nod for half mm-hmm. an hour because I do not want to have an argument with someone who has a razor <laughs> like two centimeters away from my ear. Yeah. So <laughs> mm-hmm. I was just like, I'm just gonna let it go. I was mm-hmm. like, okay, oh, that's very interesting. Yeah. Okay, yeah. And she she ran the conversation for the whole half yeah. hour, and then I just never went back to that barbershop yeah, again. Yeah. That's funny. I just chose not to go to a dentist because when I went to his website, it was a photo of him with like eight women, like dental assistants and staff around uh-huh. him. And I was like, yep, nope, not going there. Mm-hmm. It's funny oh, all, dude, the, all the reasons we have for Yeah. Yeah. 
cool. Should, should we? All right. Well, should we, uh, should we <laughs> yeah. wrap it up? All right. Cool. Well, thank you, everybody, for listening to The Black Goat, and we will uh, talk to you next time. Thank you.